Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to our Christmas episode of the Team House. This is uh, pre-recorded rather than live. Uh, today we are interviewing the author of Cold War Navy SEAL, James Hawes. James served as a Navy SEAL in Vietnam, it actually served with MACV SOG, uh, and then he went on to serve in the CIA's Maritime Branch and uh, went on a secret mission to the Congo setting up a secret Navy uh, to interdu- interdict a communist insurgency in the Congo. Uh, it's about as incredible an adventure as you can possibly imagine. I really hope that people will go and pick up the book. Uh, James, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was quiet for so long. I, I got, I get just got used to not ever telling the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this, this remained uh, an obscure secret war uh, for so long and hidden behind layers of classification for so long that it's only, you know, in recent years that you've been able to come forward and write this book and tell this story. Uh, and I'm so glad that you did. Uh, this is an important part of, of history, part, uh, an important part of Navy SEAL history, an important part of American history, really. It is. And I wanted it recorded because I didn't want anyone, uh, any, any historians with, uh, with um, attitudes um to tell the to, to tell the tale at least they'll have a first-hand account to contend with uh and hopefully that'll minimize prejudices because James. in writing this in the writing the story i i found out i had to do some research and some things i thought i knew because i'd seen it and heard it <laughs> so i came away with a new appreciation for the challenges of good history James, tell us a little bit about uh, your upbringing and, and entry into the Navy SEALs. Well, I, uh, I'd always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something like that. Remember in those days, everybody, everybody went into the military. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a foregone conclusion that that's what you, would, you, you, you did. And um, I always had in my mind that that's what I'd like to do. Uh, but I always had the problem with my with my vision, 
Uh, and uh, so when I went into the Navy, I had to get a, uh, a waiver to be an unrest what's called an unrestricted line officer, uh, a regular ship, uh, ship uh, going officer uh, because I was 2200, but I was correctable to 2020. And uh, so that made it uh, possible for me to, to do that. So I went to OCS with my first paycheck, I bought a set of contact lenses. Uh, and uh, I finished OCS, was assigned aboard a ship out of uh, Oakland, California. And uh, during the, uh, the, the, the cruise to Westpac, um, we spent a fair bit of time in Yokosuka, in Japan, which has a big naval hospital, big Navy base. And uh, I thought, well, got nothing to lose. I'm going to go ahead and apply for UDT. And um, so um, I waited till I got, of course, everything was taken care of. And I waited till the, the lunch hour to get my eye exam. And um, I went in and said uh, there was a corpsman striker, which is a, a, a sailor being trained to be a corpsman on duty during the lunch hour. I said, sailor, let me read this, uh, corpsman, let me read this uh, chart so I can get back to the ship. Aye, sir. Boom. I read it 2015, 2015. And of course, I had my contact lenses in. <laughs> there, was nothing, there was nothing in the form, the medical form, that said anything about was he wearing eyeglasses, was he wearing contact lenses, did he have binoculars, nothing. It was just read the chart. So I just read the chart. And of course, <clears throat> they're always uh, looking for, for uh, UDT officers. And, and uh, so I got a quick set of orders telling me as soon as the ship got back to Oakland to detach and report for the class uh, of uh, uh, January uh, 2nd, uh, 2000, uh, 1963. And uh, so I did that and um, we got back to Oakland and it was time to detach and I got my medical jacket. Officers, at least in those days, carried their own medical records. So I leafed through the, leafed through the file and sure enough, last page in the file was my waiver saying I'm 2200 correctable to 2020. So that was a, that was a that was an ethical dilemma uh, because it would have been easy to tear that uh, sheet out of the the record. Uh, but I thought, no, that's going too far. It's one thing to stretch the the limitations of uh, forms that don't keep up with the technology, but it's another thing to actually mess around with your with your rec with the written record. <clears throat> so I thought, well, we'll just see what happens. So I headed for Little Creek, Virginia, reported into training. Uh, the, uh, there was a first class diving, um, first class diving medical corpsman uh, on duty reading the files uh, as he checked in and he would start going through my file and I'm holding my breath. And he goes page, page, page and finally he flips the pages and he flips at the last page stuck to the page preceding it and he never saw the waiver. So, you know, that was divine intervention for the first time in, the, in this whole saga. Uh, so I'm in training and I'm wearing my contact lenses and I had 
I'd taken my pressure chest test uh, down to 200 feet in a chamber, so I knew I could do anything that had to be done with contact and diving with contact lenses without hurting myself or any of my colleagues, my teammates. So I was in the training, I'm halfway through training, and we're down to the hardcore people. Most people won't, won't, lose, won't, won't lose anybody at, beyond this point unless they get hurt. And um, so I get called in instructors out one day, and uh, one of the instructors is standing there with holding his fingers up and saying, how many fingers am I holding, Mr. Hawes? And I thought, uh-oh. He <laughs> said, they want, to, they want to see you back there in officer's country. So I go, I go back to, uh, to talk to the man whose job I will subsequently have, uh, unbeknownst to both of us. And uh, he said, okay, Hawes, well, what'd you do? So I told him, told him the absolute truth, told him the story, and he's shaking his head. And uh, he said, well, I don't know. But he said, you, know, you might be eligible for a court-martial. And I said, well, I don't think so, sir. I didn't say anything, and I didn't sign anything. And he said, well, get over to the um, hospital. You're supposed to see an ophthalmologist right now. So I go over to see the ophthalmologist. <clears throat> he says, uh, uh, Mr. Oz, you're a medical phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> you Pers is curious how you can go from 2200 to 2015 in less than a year. And I said, well, doc, I really didn't. <laughs> and, uh, and so I told him the story. He's shaking his head. He said, oh, I gotta, I'm told to give you an exam. That's what I got to do. So he gives the exam. Sure enough, what is it? 2200. So he said, well, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Ensign, you're 2200. You're 2200. And there's nothing I can do about it. And I said, yes, there is, doctor. This is, you've got to do something. And he said, well, all I can say is you're extremely well adapted for contact lenses. So I said, okay, say it. So he, he said it. <laughs> and I go back to the training unit, and the instructors don't know whether I'm going to be there, and they're busting my butt because I'm missing a few sessions. And um, um, so... I get called over to the, for a few days, not knowing what's going to happen. And a few days I get called over to the senior medical officer on the Atlantic fleet, Admiral. And so I walked in and snapped to attention as smart as I could. And Ensign Hawes reporting his directed Admiral. And he just stared at me and stared and stared. And of course the intensity was building up because this was the court of last resort for me. This was it. I'm either going to get, I'm either in or out at this point. And with all the intensity I could muster from the bottom of my toenails, I said, Admiral, I'm standing first in my class right now. So don't tell me I'm not physically qualified. And he, he looked at me, he was just stared and he didn't say anything. Finally he said, okay, I'll recommend a waiver. I hadn't been done before. I uh, said, thank you, Admiral. I'll make you glad you did it. Saluted and hauled ass. <laughs> went back to the training <laughs> unit. Went back to the training unit, but I still wasn't in. Because uh, a, few, uh, you know, a few days later, I get a call uh, from the captain of the Naval Amphibious School. In those days, you know, the, 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 the frogmen and, and seals were you know, the unwanted stepchildren of the Navy. They sort of tolerated us. And uh, so they certainly, certainly let, wouldn't let us train ourselves like they do today. 
And so it was all came, came under the Naval Amphibious School. So I go and report to the captain for Striper of the Naval Amphibious School. He says, okay, Hawes, what'd you do? <laughs> and so I told him, he's shaking his head. <laughs> Everybody's shaking their heads. <laughs> I told him exactly. And he said, well, I have a, I have a request here for a waiver that I can forward either approved or disapproved. How would you like to come back as a, as a, um, as an instructor? And I said, Captain, I'd love that after I've operated for a few years. And he said, I don't think you understood me, uh, Ensign. I've got a request for a waiver here that I can forward either approve or disapprove. How would you like to come back as an instructor? I said, Captain, I'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> so the waiver came through. So we were just heading for, for uh, advanced underwater training down in uh, part of our uh, basic training down in, uh, in Rosie Roads, Puerto Rico. And the enlisted instructors whose boss I was going to become, I was going to be soon going to be their boss. Of course, they found out about this. And I'll never get the, the, you may have heard of Master Chief Tom Blaze. He was a, he was a wonderful man. I loved him, but boy, he was tough. <laughs> and he, I never, he took, took me aside and said, Mr. Hawes, I'm going to make it my personal mission to make sure you deserve to be my boss. <laughs> so I got, Master Chief Tom Blaze's personal attention for the last five or six weeks of that training program. <laughs> then we went to then we went to um, jump school. You don't have to be able to see to go to jump school. And we then we went to underwater swim school. And uh, the guy was going to watch the diving medical officer, not corpsman medical officer, was going to not let me do training. He said you can't you can't do this stuff with contact lenses. And I, yes, sir, I can. And he said, well, I don't think so. So I'll go to see the ex executive officer. Executive officer's an old frog. And I said, sir, this guy's trying to, to, to can me here. And this is nonsense. He said, don't worry. We'll request a waiver. By the time they act on it, you'll be through the training. Anyway, they came right back and said, no problem. This guy's already, we've already acted on this. So I, I get it all completed. We go to graduation. I go right from graduation to the training unit to the instructors who have just just been breaking my butt for six months and I'm their boss. So they treat me like I'm a, like I was a medal of honor winner and been there for 50 years. I and mean, it was, they were so professional, the best year of my life, that, that year of training. So then I'm, so I'm in the, I'm in the training unit, but I want to operate. So I go over to the, I go over to the teams and I go see Ken Wolf, who was the guy who went with, who, uh, we went together to Vietnam to, to stand up the Naval Advisory Detachment subsequently. But I went over to see me with Skipper of UDT-21. I said, Commander, you want operators? I want to operate, get me a waiver. Because it was a whole separate channel of chain of command, separate. So he goes through, he gets a set of orders. I get a, I get a call for, for I get a set of orders saying report to UDT-21. I get a call from the captain of the Naval Amphibious School. He says, Ensign, get your ass over here right now. <laughs> and so I go over to report and said, you frogs are always pulling this stuff. He said, I'm going to get these orders canceled right now. Uh, and so he picked up the phone, got the orders canceled. And because he was force striper and the UD-21 captain, his skipper was just two, two and a half. Um, but the waiver was on the books. So there was nothing to keep me from going to the teams. So then I get on, do my 
do my work as an assistant training officer there in the training unit for one whole class and most of another class. And then I get a call from Tom Tarbox, who is the executive officer of SEAL Team 2. He said, uh, Jim, you want to go to Vietnam? How do you feel about well, you want to go to Vietnam? And if so, how soon can it, can you can you be ready? And he said, I can't tell you what it is because I don't know. It comes straight out of McNamara's office. I said, yeah, Tom, sounds great. I'll be ready in 24 hours. So I go over and uh, I, I go over uh, and check into SEAL Team 2. I have, have a tuck, cup of coffee with Tarbo, the executive, executive officer. Check out a SEAL Team 2 with permits, change of station orders to go to Da Nang, Vietnam to establish the Naval Advisory Detachment of MACV SOG. And, and uh, I was in SEAL Team 2 for such a short time. I went, when I went to the 25th reunion, they one of the most famous of, of all Navy SEALs, Eagle Gallagher, damn near kicked my butt because he didn't know what the hell I was doing there. <laughs> Jim, how, how... I said, whoa, 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 wait, Bob, I belong here. I can prove it. <laughs> Jim, how was it set up at that time? Because the SEAL teams were relatively new, right? So how, what, can you tell us? Because we know, we, everybody these days, I think, knows about BUDS. Like, we hear all about BUDS. But can you tell us sort of what the UDT training was like at yeah, that time? Same thing. Exactly the same. Okay. Exactly the same. You know, basically what they did was take the... Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Take the secondary mission of the UDT and make it the primary mission of the SEALs. That's roughly what what, what occurred. The same people, same training, same okay. everything. In the early days of the SEAL team, when I, when I, when I went in uh, to the SEALs, there were 10 officers. <sighs> 10 officers on each coast. 50 wow. enlisted guys. Yeah. And we didn't we didn't get these, these these wonderful schools that these guys are going that these guys go to now that makes them much much better much more prepared, you know we just got the orders and got what's called on the job training. <laughs> so Jim, uh, I I think a lot of people uh, a lot of people now are aware of MACV SOG and understand what it is, but I think a lot of folks only understand it as being a Green Beret mission, that they were special forces soldiers who were deployed behind enemy lines in Laos and Cambodia. And a lot of people don't realize that there were Navy SEALs in SOG. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that and about your role in it in Vietnam. Sure. Well, what happened was it, this was all a CIA operation before uh, January 1964. When McNamara went out and made it, made, when, when Mac, well, I, I don't know, <clears throat> It was getting too big for the CIA. It was more most appropriate to be a Department of Defense command, and um, so it was. Uh, it, be, it became an Army command. So when I got there in April of 1964, SOG was only a couple of months old, and uh, it was a, a guy. The chief, the chief at the time, I think his name was Barbier. 
CIA guy, um, was um, was replaced by Colonel Clyde Russell, who who was he came from tenth the tenth Mountain Division, and I don't think he was a special ops guy, <clears throat> but he was an Army Colonel, and and so he came over and took over basically come over SOG. So SOG was an Army command. Uh, in the Navy, uh, when McNamara came out there in uh, whenever I can't remember now, uh, was it 60, 63 or early 64, whatever it was, and came back and lied to us, said, don't worry, folks, it'll all be over in 65. <laughs> um, he saw what the agency was doing uh, with the uh, the junks and the Swifts and in North Vietnam, and he liked it. And, you know, he took the typical McNamara approach, or if it's good, small, it must be better, big, uh, better, bigger. So it had to become a Department of Defense um, operation. And so the first five of us, the two SEALs, an admin guy, an engineering guy, and then a ship driver to be in charge because the Navy in those days would never let a, let a SEAL be in charge of anything. And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, so that was it. That was the first five that went out to integrate in um, with this, the CIA and take it over and make it a Department of Defense operation, U.S. Navy, and uh, increase the tempo and the frequency of the operations Wait, into the what, north. What, what were those operations? Well, they were. We had uh, we had uh, uh, about six teams of Nungs, you know, the Chinese uh, that reside in Viet in Vietnam and are always very uh, treated very badly by the Vietnamese and Vietnamese themselves. And we had six commando teams that we trained uh, for commando type operations into the north. And then uh, because the Navy had no boats when Vietnam got started, literally no small boats, uh, that we took the first three SWIFTs, which the CIA had brought out, and used those until the Navy brought, brought in fabulous boats, the Norwegian um, Norwegian PT boats, nasty called called nasties, and boy, they were great boats. And they would they would go, we would go up and do harassment um, to the radars and various installations along the coast. And also to take the teams up for commando operations into the north and bring them back. Um, you know, it's well, it was uh, it, it was we were an irritant to the North Vietnamese, and allegedly we tied up a lot of, of North Vietnamese troops who would otherwise be in the south because of the harassment we were doing in the north. I don't know how to judge that. You, you write in the book that, uh, you know, on a few of these raids you did, the North Vietnamese, like, chased you all the way back across the oh, south. Oh, yeah. One, the, one, time, one, of those nasty, one of those nasties were so well built that one of those Swifts came back with with hold from the from the tip of the bow to the bridge on the on the port side. It was, it was smashed in completely and, and the boat made it all the way back. I mean, they were fa they were fa fabulous boats. Um, and that was, uh, that were, those were, it was those, um, harassment raids that we did, uh, and the, that it was irritating the Vietnamese. And then the ones we did on Han Mat and Han May, which were at sort of leading into the entrance of Haiphong Harbor, 
that uh, allegedly uh, provoked the so-called Gulf of Tonkin incident. Uh, so when 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 that occurred, uh, the folks in uh, all our operations were approved out were, were came out of McGeorge Bundy's office, the National Security staff. Um, we we made the recommendations. They approved them, and Westmoreland Saigon got copies of the of the information, but they weren't involved in it in any of the in the decisions, at least none that we were ever aware of. And uh, so, uh, right after the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the the, the geniuses in the National Security <coughs> uh, Council who were concerned with this stuff were afraid there was going to be a retaliation. So they wanted to get the, the, the nasties out of Da Nang. So I took the nasties and all the Vietnamese. I was the only American. Uh, some took some bags of rice, some nuke mom, and, and a uh, 1903 French chart. That's all we had for wow. the, for the Cameron that. Bay. Took a 1903 French chart and head down to Cameron Bay. Nobody knew what was there. Uh, there was a junk force, a Vietnamese junk force training base, and on the peninsula that they eventually leveled to make the 101st Airborne resupply depot, <coughs> the captain, the Dai Wei, the Vietnamese captain of that junk force base, was hunting big cat. Was hunting big cats. I mean, it was pristine. It was so beautiful. You can't believe it. <laughs> anyway, so we 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 pulled in there because at the same time we were having to dodge the International Control Commission. Uh, which was supposed to be uh, trying to expose the things that we were doing, and Secretary of State Dean Rusk was all, was denying the next day every time. Um, yeah, so I mean, I could go on about that one alone for a long time. But uh, anyway, so I think to get back to answering your question, sorry, um, the uh, it was an Army command, and so the Army did, we didn't have didn't much to do with those guys. Um, when we needed helicopter help, we just went and found an army guy that flew helicopters. So they, those army helicopter guys were so helpful and so cooperative. I can't tell you because we were walking around. We had no insignias. Uh, we weren't supposed to tell anybody what we were doing. And I remember when, when we were there in Cameron and I had to get some fuel for the boats and I got a junk and went across Cameron Bay to the village and got a taxi in the village uh, to take me to, I knew there was a special forces base halfway between there and the Trong. We went up there, I walked in, I said to them, <laughs> to the special forces captain, I said, Jeb, believe it or not, I'm a, a, a US Navy officer. I just don't look like it. And I'm certainly not dressed like it. And I damn sure don't smell like it. Uh, but I got to get to, the, I got some boats down in Cameron Bay and I got to get to Cameron to get some, arrange for some fuel. Can you help me? He said, sure, here's a Jeep, here's a driver. Just make sure you're off the road by dark. Now, that was the kind of attitude there. When I had to come back, when I made arrangements, I had to come back, I went to the, the army guys that flew, flew those little, um, those little observer planes, mm -hmm. spotter planes, whatever, and said, hey, can you, can you, can you give me a lift down to, to, uh, to Cameron Bay? I got some boats tied up down there. I got to get some fuel for. Sure, up in, boom, down. I mean, these guys were great. Other than that, we didn't have anything to do with the Army. And they didn't have anything to do with us. So uh, 
something is just happening as we're as, as, as we're speaking. Uh, I never bought, you know, where the, the MACV SOG got a, a presidential unit citation. And I never bothered to put in the paperwork because I never believed much in medals. I just saw too many of the guys who deserved them didn't get them because there was nobody around to write them up or too lazy to write them up. And guys got them that didn't deserve them. Uh, I will uh, I will not mention the name of a, of a well-known American former senator and secretary of state who is an example of that. Um, and um, uh, and yeah, so you were, just, you, just, you were then slated to go uh, to be deployed to the Mekong Delta, where the SEALs became very active later in the war. Um, but because, because I, yes, you kind of you kind of you quit the Navy sort of on an impulse because of a bureaucratic slight. Yeah, I would. I was I was I was I was I'd extend I'd agreed to extend and take the first detachment uh, back to uh, to the Delta. And it made some sense because. I'd had this, I would have had this whole year in country, which was, I think, at that time longer than anybody else had had on the teams because the guys came out from the West Coast, SEAL Team 1, on six months detachments for the training and the operations <laughs> into the North. And I'd had this uh, the entire year. But I said, look, I'd like to cut my my tour here short by a month or so, so I can get back and go through a complete training cycle with the guys that will we go into the Delta with? Cause it's a whole different, a whole different kind of operating. And the guy said, Oh, geez, I'm sorry. We can't do that. It just can't get, can't make those changes right now. And I said, okay, fine. So I thought, so I'll get a half a training cycle. And so when my relief showed up, the guy I'd gone through training with the two guys relieving, because by now the Navy was really in charge. So it was, uh, it had, two people for every single job. And um, so I, uh, I, uh, I said, I sure wish you'd come sooner, Kurt. I need to get back and work with the guys that I'm going to the Delta with. He said, oh, I could have done that easy. He said, I've just been sitting around waiting for the, waiting for this date. And I thought, you know, who was too lazy or too careless or too negligent to do this, the hell with you. Right. And I was on a voluntary extension anyway, because I'd volunteer, you know, I extended voluntarily extended my time in the Navy in order to go to Vietnam. So I picked up the phone, and it's one of those things I got right straight through to the to the detailer in Washington. I said, my name's Hawes. My file's six five three nine five nine. I'm on a voluntary extension. I want out of this Navy right now. <laughs> and the guy, he had no choice. He sent me a. He is sent the orders out and I separated and went, went down, went to San Francisco and got out. And you write in By the book that, that you, uh, you, you missed the Navy quite a bit, but then how, how did, how did this other opportunity uh, come around? Well, uh, by the time I got back to San Francisco and it cooled off, <laughs> I thought, <laughs> why, why the hell did you do that? Right. <laughs> So I headed for back to Little Creek, figuring, well, I'll just sign on again and go with the next detachment or another detachment, whatever. Because I couldn't think, I, I mean, I loved, I loved what I was doing. And um, so I stopped on the way to see my folks. And, and then I went on to uh, went on to Little Creek. And um, not long after I got to Little Creek and before I'd, I'd signed back on, I get a call from this uh, 
from this uh, SEAL who had been in Vietnam with me, but he had he was a plank owner of SEAL Team One, and he had been in the very first group of SEALs that went there in like, like 1962 or 1960, yeah, 62 or 63, I can't remember which. Anyway, and he had decided he, and, and we were in the year that I was in Vietnam, he was there, but he was, he was what's called sheep dipped. He was actually working with, within the agency. And so he had gone, he had gotten out and he had gone back and he was going to, he's going to go into the career training program at the agency. And, and plus his wife was pregnant and about to pop. And um, so he called me and because we were the only two guys that had swift experience and of any, any naval officers, uh, we were the only two. And he called me and said, uh, Jim, I'm up here in, uh, in Langley and uh, I'm about to go into the career training program and Barbara's about to pop. But um, I, they want me to go to the Congo and I don't want to say no but I don't want to go. Uh, are you interested? And I said, well, you mean I'll get paid? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so um, he, he put me in touch with the head of the branch who was Bill Hamilton, who had been commanding officer of UDT, UDU, Underwater National Unit. And so he knew everybody and everybody knew him. He was a remarkable man. He was a Naval Academy graduate. He had been a Navy or a Navy fighter uh, carrier pilot in Korea, and then he decided he wanted to be a frogman and did that. So he was a hell of a guy, and he was head of the maritime branch. So he gave me a call and said, "Phil, it's giving me your name here. Why don't you come on up? And let's talk." So I went up there and met with him, and he asked me the questions that uh, you would ask if you really wanted to verify somebody knew something about the Swifts and so forth. And he he didn't have, of course, didn't have any trouble checking me out in the community. Um, so that was basically it. And, uh, uh, so I, I signed on and, and started getting ready to go to the Congo. And there was also uh, another circumstance that came about was, wasn't there one of the agency personnel in the Congo, uh, had recently been relieved because he, of his cardinal sin of getting directly involved in combat. Well, yeah, I mean, he said, I mean, he saved the day. Yeah. Uh, he saved the day and to the credit of the agency. Uh, they didn't, the guys in the special operations division and his and friends within Africa division, uh, they didn't, uh, they saved him. Uh, they, and he went on, had a very long and very successful career. Uh, but he, he, you know, he, yeah, it, 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 if he hadn't done what he did, the operation would have failed. And the whole situation over there might have taken a, a completely different turn. He, he RPG'd some sharpshooters, right, from a boat? Yeah, we had a 75-millimeter recordless right. on, the, on the stern of this uh, big old uh, um, lake cargo vessel that had, had commandeered to turn into like a mothership heavily armed with uh, captured Russian weapons plus the 75 millimeter recoilless. So <clears throat> when they did a, an, amphi an amphibious assault at Fizi Baraka, um, there was a machine gun nest uh, that was located such that it could have probably killed the, uh, the invasion, the assault. And he put a 75 millimeter uh, 
around right between their eyes, basically, <laughs> and it and it saved the day. Uh, so the assault was a success, um, not a complete success, but but a really good success. It made a huge difference in the whole uh, progress of the and, attempt to bring all this to a halt. And, and then what was your role as as you got brought into the program and, and headed off to the Congo? Well, he was there. He was there uh, basically. The 303 committee, which was the guys that handled all these special operations in the uh, the president's office, the national security office, had not made a real commitment to solving the problem in the Congo. This was just sort of, um, you know, send a guy out there and see what he can do to help this situation. They hadn't really made a commitment to bringing it to a halt. And after the, after the, um, after the atrocities uh, in Stanleyville, uh, they had to act. I mean, they just couldn't keep killing mercenaries, having seen mercenaries get killed in the most brutal, savage sort of way and so forth. And uh, so they made a commit, and everybody by this time knew all about the Simmas. They knew that the, that the they were being resupplied, ammo, medicines, food, everything coming across like Tanganyika from the port of Kagoma and Tanganyika. And so they, 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 they said, look, we got to make a commitment. To, we got to interdict the stuff. So we got to set up a, a little Navy. And uh, so that was, uh, that was how it happened. They, they were going to finally go about it the right way and make the right kind of commitments. And then of course we had Hamilton there at the, Maritime Branch and his deputy Tom Tom Kleins, Tom Kleins, and I, the Lord must have put them there because they were the two perfect guys, and um, yeah, so that's how that happened. And so, but what was you were ostensibly the program manager, right? That got brought into into that, the Congo, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yep. tell tell us a situation when you hit the ground. What what you inherited when you got there, and, and what you had to build after you arrived. Well, when I got there, there were some shot up, the, some sh little boats that were shot up and not running up, not operating. That was it. The, the, the mother, the mother ship was around that one I just described to you. The, that was around. It's like a ferry boat, right? Yeah. And, but they, and these guys, they, they had, they had a couple of the small boats. I remember now they had a couple of the small boats operating and whore was kind of using them. He didn't know how to use them really. But he was using this the way he thought work would be helpful to him, and uh, so it wasn't organized. It wasn't it wasn't manned with people who knew what they were doing. Uh, and, and just to just to elaborate for the, no, for, that, for the for the there was for, nothing there for for there the viewer for the viewers out there. You're referencing Mike Hor, the notorious five commando Congo mercenary. Uh, we had his son on this show to speak, talk about his father a, a ways back. Um, and I mean, that's a, that's an incredible story in of itself that you intersected with. I remember that guy was, I think that guy was born in the Congo when we were there. Oh, he may, may have been. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, whore had, had his wife and, and his baby. Uh, boy, they were, she's, that woman was some, she was not only is she great looking, she was, she was strong. She was tough. Wow. 
And I remember that. Yeah, and I, and I remember him. <laughs> I never, I never really, I never really thought of that till right now. <laughs> yeah, he, he wrote he wrote a biography about his dad. Uh, yeah, that yeah. We, we talked I to him get, about. I need, I need to get that. And he he seems to be, I mean, he obviously adores his father, and for a lot of good reasons. But he also seems to be fairly realistic. I mean, I think he was so. a hell of a guy. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a hell of a guy, and he was the right guy for that job. So, what did you you said that it was a pretty uh, slapdash sort of situation that you walked into? Um, what was what did you, what did you do to start build up this this uh, covert capability um, to start interdicting Simba supply lines across the lake? Well, the first thing we had to do was you know sort of establish a base. Then we had to we had to, to form a navy, which means we had to get people, and uh, the. I, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any idea how, when I arrived, nobody, there was no, as my boss said, look, you're on your own. You, I, I'll help you as best I can, but you got to figure it out. So when he got there, all we had was five commandos and that was my core. My core, I wasn't going to let my core be my boss because he would have always subordinated the interdiction mission, which was my mission, he would always subordinate to his needs for the, you know, for the five commando army needs. And so I had to go through the, the little tug of war that that took to make core understand that who was going to run the Navy um, without severing the relationship, the working relationship. And part of that was making sure that I could the the navy he would he could understand that the navy could really support him better than he could do it on his own and make make him convince him and then make him believe that um so the first thing i did was basically say okay we're going to set up the, we're going to set up our base i found I found that out and that's described in the book and um uh then i I got lucky, and I, <clears throat> I heard about this regimental horse regimental sergeant major. You know, in the British system, the regimental sergeant major he's the man. He's the he's the guy responsible for all the. Uh, he's a senior enlisted man. He's he is the, responsible for the training, and the conduct, of the troops. And in this case, uh, Hor also trusted him as much as Hoare trusted anybody. <laughs> and uh, so he, um, he, he had been, he had been away on sick. I'd heard about him and he had, you know, <laughs> horrible reputation <laughs> as a, as a murderous uh, thug, but a good soul, but good soldiering capability. And, uh, but the important thing is the regimental sergeant major, I knew he knew everybody and knew, I knew he had the, file in his head on every single mercenary. So I, I heard that he was coming back where he had been away on, on sick leave and I heard he was coming back and I asked him to, I got word to him to please come over and see me. And I was trying to figure out what this guy really wanted because I didn't, I, I couldn't, I didn't pay anybody. I'm supposed to be in charge of this guy. I'm supposed to be giving orders, but they're mercenaries and I don't pay them. I'm not in their chain of command. I'm not even in their unit. They were five commando. Uh, so 
I had to figure out how, what this guy really wanted. And what, 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 what I, I began, I've sensed early on, it turned out to be absolutely true is my core would never let him be an officer because he was too valuable to horror as a regimental sergeant major. He wanted to be an officer. He is British trained, been in Rhodesia military. He wanted to be an officer. And uh, so I said to him, uh, by the way, and I uh, treated him like he was a, a UDT trainee. Uh, and I, I, by this time, everybody was calling me commander. So I just let him. Commander made me an equal rank with my corps. Uh, you know, it worked. Um, I didn't initiate that. It just happened. And, uh, and then I used it. Uh, so I treated him like, uh, you know, like I, I was the commander and he was the UDT trainee. And I basically said, look, I hear you're a hell of a guy. And I want to set up this Navy and need to do it fast. And we need to be really good. And I know you're going to know who the best guys in five commando are that we can recruit into the Navy. So <clears throat> if you're, if you're up for that, and, and I said, I can't bid for your services because I don't pay. But I said, I can make you start out as a lieutenant if you're as good as you say you are. And I think you are make you captain in no time. You run the Navy, you run the men, I run the operations. That's the deal. You got, you got a decision, mate. Do it. So he, he's, he's quiet for a second. He said, okay, fine. And uh, <clears throat> sometime later, he said, you know, nobody ever talked to me like that, like you did. Not my core, not anybody. I didn't know whether to join you or kill you. <laughs> you said, well, you're right. Glad you made the right choice. <laughs> you write in the, in the book uh, that the chief of station, Larry Delvin, describes Jock Cassidy, the regimental sergeant major, as a gentleman adventurer, which you. Oh, no, that was whore. That was, that was Mike Horror who said that. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh. And you, you there said was nothing, gentlemen, about Jock Cassidy. You, you, you said you took that to encompass a number of different traits, including that of a bandit, because yeah. uh, Jock was known to be the guy that would loot every bank and safe in every town that Five Commando hit. That's right. And and Cassidy told me so. I you know take it for what it's worth. Cassidy told me that he and John Peters were responsible for getting, uh, taking care of Hoare's share of all that loot uh, so that sh so that Hoare could remain uh, the British gentleman <laughs> and not get his hands dirty. So the, the next step in your in your secret Navy that you were building, talk to us about the Cubans. I, I can't, uh, can't, once I start, I can't stop. Uh, those guys were, they were just, I can't say enough good about them. Can't say enough good about them. They, you take, not, they were professional. They had great pride in their professionalism. Never had one incident of problem with any one of them. They didn't get sucked into any of the boozing and the, and the bad stuff with the mercenaries. They conducted themselves as real professionals and they were their their dedication to killing communists was fierce uh and uh that was all good things <laughs> and they were smart chavez and pachardo were the two guys in, in you know number one number two of the bunch 
They were smart. They were all smart. But uh, Chavez and Pacharo had a lot of experience, and uh, they they ran their teams really well. I never had a thing to worry about. I thought Not it, one time. It, it was interesting that they were running covert operations down in Nicaragua at the time, and that went kind mm-hmm. of south. So they had to get those guys and the, both the, the crew and the boats out of that AO. And yeah. that was kind of fortuitous for you and your mission. Yeah. 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 I mean, and that was, again, that was Hamilton and, and Kleins. And these guys had so much trust in Tom Kleins that it made all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. They, they believe Tom Kleins 100%. And so Tom Kleins basically just turned that over to me. And I, you know, I don't know if I say it on here, what Tom Kleins said to me as, as he got on the plane and left. But, um, yeah, he, he, he bestowed all that on me. And uh, it uh, saved a lot of time. And getting, of time. Get, getting the Cubans in sounded like it was relatively easy. They could come in on tourist visas with the agency kind of maybe greasing some palms in, in a place or two. But tell us about getting the boats in, because that had to be done in secret. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, interesting uh, interesting read. You, you would enjoy reading a book called Mimi and Tutu. And it's about what the British did in the First World War to take the, take the, the German boats off of Lake, Lake Tanganyika. On, on the same and lake they, you were on. Yeah, on the same lake. And they brought, their, they brought boats in through South Africa overland. And they put it and they put it's it, it was the basis of the movie The Africa Queen. Uh, and they put in they 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 put their base of operations was just, you know, 10, 50 miles, whatever, uh, just uh, north of where we were. Um, so I didn't know any of that until I thought we were, you know, had this, had, had this genius idea nobody ever thought of before. <laughs> but actually, the Brits did the First World War successfully. Anyway, um, the uh, Hamilton and Kleins, of course, had were involved with the with the, the Swifts and the Nicaragua operation and so forth. And so they quickly identified as the boats, and they went to to went to. To Fred Seward, to Seward Seacraft, who had built the Swifts, and um, said, "Look, we got this. We got this uh, challenge." And he brought in uh, brought in his his, his Cajun guys and who had built the boats, and they sat down and figured out how to do it. And it had to be done. Of course, you couldn't. It had to be, it had to be flown because the only way you do it clandestinely was to fly them over, and. Um, uh, so they they figured out how to with the with the designer of the boats, a guy named Hidalgo. They uh, they uh, figured out where and how to slice them up, and how to uh, how to put them in proper uh, uh, you know jigs, and put them on C one twenty four Globemasters and fly them into the fly them into the into the Congo, fly them into this airstrip, twenty <laughs> fours. There's a narrow gauge railway running beside it. Getting the pieces, and they went. They cut the bow, cut the superstructure, cut them longitudinally, put them into C-124s with all the engines and spares, et cetera, et cetera, and then put all of that on these narrow gauge railroads. Take them to the port of Albertville, which is very well deserted, but fortunately had some cranes, cranes that still uh, operated, and uh, then brought in the Cajuns Black. Uh, 
and they resemble those things wow. uh, much faster than anyone thought was possible. They were terrific. Those Cajuns, they worked hard from the dawn till dusk, and uh, you had a cold beer and a laugh, and up and at them the next day. They were they were just terrific. And they didn't have to be there. They were volunteers. They were just doing their bit for the country. And um, uh, and then we brought in uh, a couple other guys from the maritime unit who were engine, a guy named Joe Brush, who was a superstar engineman. And I uh, got them all, I uh, got them all uh, fixed up and put back on the lake. And they went on the, got, flew them out black. No one ever knew they were there. In fact, I tried to call after this book came out. I tried to, you know, Stuart Seacraft no longer exists, but there's another company down there doing the same thing, making, I think, basically the same boats. I'm just under, I don't know how the ownership changed. And I thought, geez, you know, this would be a really good thing for you to to, to play up. It's you know, basically your boats or you inherited. Uh, it's your people that you manufacture your boats. You could really, you'd really do some good, at least local good. Goodwill stuff with this. Never got an answer. <laughs> never, never got an answer. Anyway, maybe they'll watch the podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so I threw them and put them on, and that was this it. And boy, I, I tell you, I, I think I said in the book, there was a Belgian general came through and a in a, a British army colonel who was attached to the embassy, British embassy in Kinshasa. They couldn't believe their eyes. They saw what we were doing, Fly, flying those suckers in and <laughs> bringing these guys in to stitch them back together and putting them on the lake. They were dazzled, just so dazzled. At this, it was dazzling. It was impressive. At, at this point, you have a couple American CIA Maritime Branch guys running the program. Yourself, you brought your friend uh, Gooch in. Uh, you got Cuban crews, exiled Cubans, uh, crew in the boat. And then the guys actually manning the guns and are five Cuba, commando. No, no the, the 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 Cubans came out to to commence the interdiction operation while training five commandos to take over the interdiction operation. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. The good thing was that, and because the State Department was very nervous about the Cubans being there, and they wanted them out as fast as possible. Fortunately, they were we were doing so well that that. that the urgency of that became a little less, although it didn't go away. And by the time they did go away, we had achieved more than everyone thought was possible faster than they would ever imagined. So we didn't really have to do without the services of the Cubans for very long, certainly not during the heavy lifting. So talk to us then about the actual operations, doing these interdictions out on the water and a uh, a close pass with one Che Guevara. Well, here you set the stage. Um, it's like patrolling from Miami, Florida to Savannah, Georgia. That's that. That was what they had to patrol in a fifty-foot boat. Okay. Uh, plus, we had the mothership, and we had the five or six little boats. We had uh, <laughs> radar and line of sight radios on the mothership so it could you, you could use it for for surveillance the radars for surveillance and then they could direct the small boats to the targets uh identified on the radars and then we had the swifts for for the heavy work 
and to Rome. And, um, and we, we, we seldom used both swifts simultaneously, always one and the other. They would take turns going out. Now, Ermans could go out all the time because they could, you know, they could stay out. They could truce, could sleep on the boats and eat on the, on the mother's vessel and so forth. Um, and basically we would, and I had this guy, this Greek guy who befriended with, who, was, who, who ran all the fish, fishing operations on the lake. Most of the fishing operations on the lake were done by Greeks and he was the head Greek. And by having him as a friend, I knew everything that was going on, basically everything that was going on in any of the ports on the lake because the Greek fishermen were in and out of all of them. So we had a hell of an intelligence net and then when we would, we would, and then we had the five commandos who were always stirring things up and getting documents and interrogating people and so forth to, to give us indications of where people might be. And then we began to identify where the camps were along the coast of the Eastern Congo, where the, where the, the supplies from Tanganyika would, would typically go. So we've been at home in on the areas that really need to be looked at more closely. So it, it became, it became number one, identifying the most likely areas, and then and then uh, using the assets that we had uh, as we thought they needed to be employed. So, does that answer you? Yeah, I, I, it it begins. Um, how did that go when they started actually interdicting communist supply lines? <laughs> well, I think the best uh, the best. Uh, the best source for that's Che Guevara. <laughs> if you read if you read his book, The Congo Diary, uh, the first line uh, the first line in the book is this is a history of a failure. Uh, because in his book, his The Congo Diary, he starts talking about the the uh, the impact that he's feeling from the interdiction in terms of getting food, ammunition, medicines, anything. And it uh, didn't take long, didn't take long at all uh, before uh, when, when they got my predecessor was there and before he even had this, they got lucky one time and they got uh, they got a, a Simba who was coming back from China. He was the Minister of Information or something for the Simbas. Uh, so but that was, you know, that was luck. Uh, I mean, obviously it was he was doing the best with what he had available. We had a lot more available uh, that we could make this more uh, systemized, uh, more regularized, and uh, uh, yeah, more systematic. I guess is the best way to say it. And in in your book, uh, you and your co-authors spent some time doing some research and putting together your ship logs and records from that time, declassified records with uh, Guevara's book. And you guys had like a pretty close call. You think where like you almost clipped him. Oh, I think we got almost got him at least once. And then we damn sure almost got him when he was leaving the Congo on the 25th of November. Uh, but that one, that one, the, the first one I think you're referring to was, you know, in the lake, uh, I, it, the rivers that fade into Lake Tanganyika are powerful, powerful. And they, and, the, and with the rain and so forth, they're always breaking. They're, there's always pieces of terrain breaking off. I mean, there'll be like islands out there floating until the, until the surface action of the, of the, the lake finally uh, breaks them all up. 
uh, but until that time, it's like islands out there. And if you're in, it's pitch dark. Remember, it's pitch dark. There's not a not a light anywhere. Uh, so you get these you get these images coming out of the dark when you're patrolling, and you don't know whether it's a, a boat. If you don't have a radar, you, you don't know whether it's a boat or an island. If, and if it's a wooden boat or an island, that makes it kind of hard to distinguish. Uh, but in any case, they detected these five, whatever they were at the time, they thought. So they started kind of easing up on it. And it turns out it's a covey of five boats. And four of them were very, very keen on protecting the fifth. That, that was obvious. Uh, the fifth got away. We subsequently found out not long after that it was when we absolutely established that Che Guevara was in the Congo, which nobody in the world knew for sure until that was done. Uh, and it's as much as we can triangulate the information, the timing, the dates, and so forth, that fifth boat, that boat that got away, that was Che. Um, so we can't say for absolute certain, but as I said, if you triangulate all the information, it appears that... Uh, and also this yeah, interesting scenario in which you have CIA-sponsored Cuban exiles fighting communist Cubans that have been sent there by Fidel and, and part of Guevara's revolutionary warfare over there. Yeah. Uh, and what, what, well, was... what, what when the agency decided when the agency uh, recognized or the government recognized that we that we needed to have the Cubans. They didn't realize there were any Cubans in right. uh, in the Congo. Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't uh, it was an intent. It just happened. And what what was the second incident? You said you almost clipped him coming out of the country. Oh well, that was when he finally gave up. Uh, they were giving up, and they were trying to get get back get back to uh, Kigoma, they're trying to get across the lake, and trying to arrange transportation. And here I am at our time arranging transportation because of what we were doing to them. And um, we we also were, we got the intelligence from five commando and we had planes overhead. And it looked like we were going <laughs> to we were about ready to get them. And one of the planes crashed. So we went, you know, the guys, of course, went to see if they could help the pilot or anything. And the only thing we can figure is just during that that brief period, is when he made Che and uh, made his move and, and and got off of the peninsula there and at Baraka, and uh, and and got away. I mean that's the only thing that could have happened because he was there. We knew he was there. The fifth commander knew he was there. We had airplanes overhead. Uh, you know the boats were ready, and then that that crazy crash, uh, and everybody of course turned to go to sure. see if there was any chance of doing anything for the pilot. And during that during that period, it seems that that's when he uh, when he made his escape. And the only thing that makes sense. And, and the process of all of this, managing this covert operation, you're also having quite an interesting time trying to manage personnel, uh, particularly the mercenaries. Uh, Jack, uh, Jock Cassidy almost killed a case officer. <laughs> You got you had to defuse that situation. I was wondering if you could tell us a little the story about what ultimately became of Jock, um, as far as his departure with your Navy. Well, um, 
you know, he threatened to kill the case officer. He had threatened to kill the, well, first of all, this wouldn't have been his first killing. That was plenty of evidence of that. Uh, but he threatened to kill the case officer and we, we managed to, to dissipate uh, that. And, but it was a signal of what happens uh, under certain circumstances when he had too much to drink, which was most of the time, but never on duty. Um, and he was, uh, he was at one of the mercenaries watering holes, uh, or no, it was, it was the air guys, the uh, air support guys and pilots had a place that they stayed, had their own watering hole. And he was there and he got into an altercation with one of the, uh, one of the, uh, air support guys, mechanic or something. And, and I, I witnessed, I mean, we have American witness to this. And uh, so he got into a, they both had too much to drink and Cassie had a lot too much to drink. And plus he had terrible liver for both tropical disease and booze. So it didn't take much to, for him to get uh, into difficulty. And uh, Anyway, so he got he got angry at this guy. I thought the guy insulted in front of his pe people. So he got his pistol and he stuck it in the guy's nose and shot him. And um, so he he went back to his quarters, gave up his pistol to to an American to one of the Americans involved in the in the air operation. Uh, said he said something about wish he hadn't wish he hadn't killed that guy. Wish he'd killed the other guy. Uh, and by the morning when he had sobered up, he stole a boat, one of the little PTs, stole a boat to head and was going to try to make it to Rhodesia through Zambia. Well, of course, he was easy to track because, you know, the, the pilots, the air, the, air, the air guys, the Makassis were, were angry that he killed one of theirs. And so they, they were able to track him all the way down to, uh, to the border. And Larry Devlin correctly uh, predicted that that's exactly where he would go. So Devlin got in touch with the, for his own channels, got in touch with the Zambians. So they captured Cassidy as soon as he, as soon as he uh, landed and uh, turned him over to the Congolese. The Congolese tried him and sentenced him to death. Uh, but he bought his way out of that with some of that gold that he had uh, gotten uh, up in the northern Congo and uh, I can't remember the name of the town right now, but where all the gold is produced. Now, near Goma is the biggest town, but that wasn't the town, near Goma. And he had, you know, his stash of gold and, and, he, had, and he, had some, he had some connections and there were some people who liked him and I'm sure he, he, uh, he crossed their palms as well. In any case, he got out and he... Uh, ended up in South Africa. And when we were writing this book, somehow we, we get a, we get a, uh, a email from a young lady named Cassidy, who said she's his daughter. And she would appreciate it if we didn't say whatever it was that we had in the draft. Uh, otherwise, she was going to try to kick up a stink. And it didn't matter to us because what she wanted erased wasn't that important and so we did it but that's what happened to Cassie. so he died in he just died in south africa <laughs> oh so there was there was some uh other improprieties that uh mr cassidy was involved in 
Oh, well, I, 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 I can't remember what you're referring to now, but I'm not. Well, no what, whatever you, he whatever was, you had to delete out of the book. Oh no, I can't. I, 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 I mean, I can. Hell, I could look. I could probably look at Marianne would know what it was, so I could get that for you if you really wanted it. But it wasn't <laughs> of any consequence. Right, right, right. He, he just, he, you know, I mean, you know, some guys just can't help themselves. They just, they just got to find trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was one of those guys. Um, you know, and he and John Peters were a hell of a hell of a pair. If anything, Peters was more ruthless than, than Cassidy. So. Yeah, they uh, didn't. Didn't Peters? You think murder his commanding officer or his superior? To, so that oh, the guy. Well, they when in the when when Hor when Hor decided not to extend his contract and, and wanted to leave, and uh, I think his wife and son were had had enough. The war was essentially over by then. Run essentially won by then, and so they, they. But there was still mopping up and stuff to do, and so. They came. Well, who's going to be in charge? Well, the the logical guy in terms of just warrior uh, was was Peters. Peters, hell of a warrior. I mean, and uh, and then there was this guy Hugh Van Oppen, who was I mean, who looked like he walked out of a Sandhurst poster. You know, he was tall and he was lanky and had a handlebar mustache and. He had the bearing and the demeanor. He'd actually had attended Sandhurst for some time before he got uh, got kicked out. Uh, so he knew uh, he knew how to he knew how to act. He had a polish that Peters didn't have, and uh, Peters hated him. Comparing the two of them would be like comparing Little Lord Fauntleroy to Jack the Ripper. <laughs> uh, and most of the mercenaries didn't didn't want to be led by Little Lord Fauntleroy. So everybody was sympathetic to Peters. So <laughs> when when Van Oppen accidentally killed himself with a burst from his automatic weapon, <laughs> everybody said, "Oh well, bad luck. Yeah. Too bad." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what are they going to do? There's no 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 legal recourse, no no judicial stuff, and and all the remain and all the remaining five commando guys wanted Peters anyway. So. And by that time, the five commando guys, the, the quality of the five commandos was pretty shabby. And uh, they would have been uh, very receptive to, uh, to Peters. So. And there is uh, lots, lots else uh, going on in your book. Excuse me. Uh, sorry, my allergies are bothering me today. Um, lots else going on. You got deathly sick at one point, fell into the arms of a lovely young woman. Uh, all kinds of cool stuff, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how your mission in the Congo began to wind down. Well, when, when Che, there are several things that led to Che finally giving up. Mm -hmm. Rwanda was there, which you never read about. Rwanda was there, the colonel in charge of the Rwanda contingent, which was supporting the Simbas. He said, you know, we're done. We can't do anymore. These Simbas, they don't care. They only want to rape, plunder, and pillage. So I'm, I, you know, I'm taking my guys home. Um, Tanganyika, or maybe it was Tanzania by, Tanzania by this time, they withdrew their financial support. That was really important. Um, and um, even uh, Sudan was involved. 
and they withdrew their support. So th there was no money for, and that meant there was no weapons, no food, no medicine, no nothing. And uh, allegedly Che's guys said, uh, look, Che, we'll stay with you here forever, but we're just gonna die. And uh, Che wouldn't kill, cared about how many other people he killed, but he did, uh, he did have some concern for his own guys. And uh, so uh, that was it. But everything, everything it just, everything that it took to perpetuate it cratered about the same time. And it, because it was inevitable that, it, that they were, that this, they were going to lose. <coughs> the, the interdiction was really working. The five commandos had done, done their job. Uh, the Simbas could go back to, as I said, rape, pillaging, and plundering. They didn't have any ideological commitment right. to this at all. There's another reason that Che Guevara was such a fool. He, you know, he came in thinking somehow or other he was a a, a communist missionary. <laughs> he was gonna he was gonna in, in, incite and and motivate <clears throat> these guys who didn't give a damn. And so he never did get the support. And he talks about it all the time in his diary. And, just, and he even gets on to he even gets on to Fidel saying, Fidel, don't send these guys money. If you're going to give them any money, if you're going to send money, send it to me so I can use it. These guys, they'll they'll say what you want to hear. And then as soon as they get the money, they go. They don't do anything. So, um, you know, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, it all just finally cratered all at once, basically. And then there was nothing left, but the mopping up had to do with just the remnants of the Simbas that were trying to continue, not for any ideological reasons, just trying to continue because they wanted to steal uh, rape and plunder. James, this was a an, an really incredible book. I, I loved reading it. It's uh about as fun uh, adventure as you can possibly imagine. It's got CIA secret missions. It's got mercenaries. There's a little bit of romance. There's some tragedy, unfortunately. Um, well, there was the reason there was only a little bit of romance is there damn sure wasn't much romance during all that time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had to go back to the embassy for that uh, that interlude. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I had to go back with the tea sippers. Yeah, I and I know you and your co-author did a tremendous amount of research for this book as well. Um, do you have any any final thoughts? Anything's concluding remarks that you'd like to get out there about the book or this experience? Vietnam and the Congo and a couple other things have taught me a lesson that I don't think the government has still learned or ever maybe ever will learn. And that is that uh, there is a headquarters mentality and there's a field mentality and they will never meet. Yeah. The headquarters people seem to think they're at headquarters because they're smarter. And the field people feel like they're in the field because they're they're tougher and are capable of doing the things that the guys back at headquarters can't do. And and the you know everything starting from the coup with the M, uh, where we you know where the guys on the ground said to, to Lodge and Kennedy and all those guys said, "Don't do it now. There's nobody to replace him. 
he can't, there's nobody to replace him. We can get rid of him anytime, but let's get a suitable replacement. Of course, they ignored him. Uh, there was the coup. And what do we have? Five or six new different gov governments over the course of the next year. Um, in the Congo, Devlin was, a, even today, the memories of, of Devlin in Central Africa are, are, are admiring of him and his knowledge and his abilities. Even the guys that didn't like him uh, acknowledged how capable he was. And he had a constant battle with headquarters. And that's an agency. And that's a lot easier than dealing with the National Security Council of the State Department. Uh, I think that it's somehow or other, they got to get guys up there that have spent some time at the tip of the spear because you can't, our, our understanding of cultures, our understanding of cultures is embassy based. So people in the embassy, who do they meet? They meet the, the educated one or two or 3% of the population. Mm -hmm. And these are guys who were educated probably in the West. So they know the jargon, they know the language, they know, you know, what, you know, what to say and what, and how to, how to handle these guys. And there's this whole 95 to 98% representing a culture that, that, that our official community never really gets, never really gets into. So why do we make mistakes? Because <laughs> we, we're ignorant. We're ignorant. You we just don't, you don't, and we don't reward the people. <laughs> there's a, there's a great book by Rudyard Kipling called The Country Officer. And you know, they'd send these Scots out into the, out into the territories and these guys would spend their whole lives. And this guy had been in Afghanistan for 26 years <laughs> when he finally, uh, when he finally went home. At the end of 26 years, he reckoned that he had learned a little bit. And I, I read, I read that periodically because it's so true. And now that I'm, you know, I'm messing around in the Congo and in Africa again, I just see it and see it and see it. It's just, uh, it, it, it's so hard to, uh, hard to get into these cultures and you got to, you got to make a career for people who are willing to do it. You know, you go back and spend your time at headquarters. You're not really learning anything about the country that you, the countries and, and the peoples that you're trying to influence. Yeah, we have you know, a, a real a problem with but, culture, cultural fluency. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly the right expression. Yeah, but <clears throat> so you got to make a career path for people that'll go out and do that. You can't. Uh, I know a guy who just resigned because uh, he spent his 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 uh, 15 or 16 years in the field and he was going to have to go back to headquarters to get promoted and he didn't want to do that so all that is gone yeah gone. the in institutions whether I, I mean i can't speak for the the cia but i, I think it's true of the military for sure um they don't necessarily like lawrence of arabia types like you're kind of out there on your own outside the chain of command for too long <laughs> and they get a little uh, cautious, I guess, about about the, those types of characters. Here's a prediction for you. There will never be a non 
and never again be a non a non army commander of SOCOM. Why do you think that is? Because as much as you hear about Green Berets, et cetera, right now and Delta, et cetera, the 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 real army can't tolerate them. Just can't tolerate them. Big army can't tolerate them. And that's why if you read if you read ben, uh, Milligan's book yeah. the, by Water Beneath the Wall, it, you, you see, you, I mean, it really it really brings it home because you see how somehow rather all the predecessors of the SEALs led to the SEALs and all the other special operation operations units of the other services got absorbed into the into the regular uh, units because the, the the regular the hardcore regulars can't tolerate the uh, the uh, Special operations, the, the anomalies. Yeah, <laughs> we had we had we had Ben on the show to talk about his book, a terrific, terrific oh, great. book. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I yeah. would highly recommend that book as well. Yeah. To our, yeah. our viewers Absolutely. would definitely enjoy it. Yeah. And, and of yeah. course, that interview is very good. And well, that's a real book. I mean, this is a story, but this, Ben's is a real book. Well, it's yeah. a real it's a really good story, though. So I, I yeah. hope all of you out there will go and pick this book up. Cold War Navy Seal by James Hawes, our guest and his co-author, Mary Ann Koenig. James, thank you so much for joining us yeah. tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thank thanks you. so much, James. We really appreciate it. Good. Thank Take you. care, guys. Everyone have a good Christmas and a happy New Year's. Yep. Bye-bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, James. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.